0: Hi guys, my name's Bianca. I'm a second year student studying marine biology. I'm going to be doing the Bible reading. Um, It's in your little booklets, or if you want to read directly from your Bible, it's Isaiah 52 verse 13 to 53 verse 12. (coughs) See my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form was marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground, So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Thank you.
1: Thanks, Bianca. Back in 1997, a man called John Silvera put a prank ad in a little tiny magazine called the Backwards Home Magazine. And this is what it said. It should be up on the screen here. Wanted somebody to go back in time with me. This is not a joke. Gives you the PO box, and then he says, You'll get paid after we get back. Must bring your own weapons. Safety not guaranteed. I've only done this once before. Now, this was at the beginning of the magazine's life. They didn't have enough content, so they had to make up some stuff. When the guy put it in, he expected three or four responses, maybe. But because the credibility, um, uh, the credulity, sorry, of the, the human race knows no bounds, he got thousands upon thousands of responses, and they're still coming. Twenty-five years later, some wanted the adventure. Others wrote in about the types of weapons they could bring to the table to try and out-nudge the other competitors who might be applying, the survival skills they had. But the thing that was really, really interesting was not that people believed that this was for real, but the reasons they had for replying to the ad. According to Silvira, the main reason people replied was so that they could go back and change some of the worst mistakes they had ever made. A lot of them were prison inmates, harbouring deep regret and guilt over the things that they had done, and they just wanted to go back and wipe the slate clean. Uh, here is one of the responses. This is from a woman called Robin, who had an affair and then, with her boyfriend, hired an assassin to kill her husband successfully. From jail, I am extremely interested in this and would not even require payment. I will not need a weapon. And in fact, would like to travel back to 1991 or previously to change the events leading to the death of my husband, for which I am in prison. I don't care about my safety. In fact, if I cannot change the events of the past, I would prefer not to even survive. Please contact me by return mail with further information about this possibility. Now, this woman was interviewed later, and she said that when she saw the ad, she was about 20% sure it could be for real. But her sense of guilt over what she had done was so strong that even the wildest, most unlikely possibility of her changing that one event, that one action, was enough for her to reach out. Anything to remove the sleepless nights, the pangs of conscience, the horror of what she had done. If you had a time machine, what would you go back and change? What are the things in your past that you would rather erase than have to carry? If you got a chance to go back and take it back, you'd do it in a heartbeat. Now, you may not have assassinated anyone. I certainly hope you haven't. But the one thing that I can guarantee you is that even at your age, there are things that you had wished you had never done, things you'd wished you'd never said, things that make us guilty that in our darker moments weigh us down and sap our strength and our appetite and our confidence. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's something you said or did to a family member, uh, something you did to a a guy or girl at school, uh, something that you saw or looked at on the internet. But whatever it was, the things that keep us awake at night and really kind of question who we are. Today I want to talk to us about guilt. And not just the feeling of guilt, but the objective reality of guilt as we stand before a holy God. And I want to talk about it, not to rub our noses in it, because at Easter, we celebrate in the death and resurrection of Jesus the God-provided means of removing our guilt. And the way that we're going to do that is we're going to hop into a different sort of time machine. We're going to look at a prophecy that was just read out to us by Bianca that was written about 700 BC. So we're talking almost three millennia ago by God about what he would do in Jesus And the hope that that would give us today as we confront our guilt. We're going to do that uh, through three stages. First of all, we're going to look at how we try and fail to carry our own guilt. Uh, Second, we're then going to look at how God carries our guilt for us. And then finally, third, I want to leave us with a question. Who will carry your guilt this Easter? So first, let's have a look at our unbearable guilt uh, people try, I think, and deal with guilt in different kinds of ways. Uh, some people try to remove it. Uh, and, and usually, what this means is that they do good things to try and replace and outweigh the bad. So, we kind of heard from Anthony before, it seems to be that's what he did. Uh, and so, if you've kind of wronged a family member, you'll work really hard at loving that family member from now on. Um, if you're religious, you might start going to church, uh, not just once, but twice every Sunday. Uh, you, you might pray more regularly. A- and, and the greater the guilt, the more you do to prove to yourself that you have paid for that crime and that you can just move on. And if that's us, then we kind of tend to view guilt like a set of scales. And so long as our good over here outweighs our bad, then we're no longer guilty. The problem with that is that though that might settle our consciences, it doesn't actually remove our guilt, does it? Now, think about our legal system. You might be a model citizen community service, all that stuff. You run kids' clubs, whatever it may be. Um, But if you willfully break the law, no matter how nice you are, you're still guilty of that crime. The judge might take your your behaviour into account and, and lessen your sentence, but you will still have a sentence. You have to answer for everything that you've done, not just the balance of what you've done. And so if you try to remove it, you still carry your guilt. Now, some people, because of this, they ignore their guilt. They pretend it never happens. Now, that might be like a complete suppression of the deeds passed. Oh, no, I never did that. No, no, just complete denial. Uh, but usually what it, what it usually looks like is just putting it out of your mind. So, um, for you, it's about just getting on with life. And just you don't think about it. And so for small misdeeds, you know, you cheat on a test. You kind of lie to your parents about where you were on Saturday. You just kind of say, yourself, it's no big deal. It's just, just a small thing. Just put it out of your mind. It, it really doesn't matter. Uh, and that works to a certain point, but, but the problem is that that strategy has uh, like a diminishing returns the larger your guilt gets. Because there are some things that we do that are so significant that they are impossible to ignore, even if we want to. Our consciences won't let us rest, and as soon as we let our guard down, all of a sudden we're reliving our worst moments, and we are powerless to change them or the things that they have caused. So we can try and remove it, we could ignore it. If they don't work, we try to justify it. Uh, We look for ways to excuse what is ordinarily wrong and justify why it's actually right in this particular case. And maybe I'm showing my age here. I really don't have any idea about what popular culture is or was. Uh, But my wife and I watched the first season of Suits. Mm, It was okay. Um, But one of the things that was really, really interesting is the whole premise of that show is that the the high-flying lawyer Harvey comes across this genius of a guy, Mike, And he hires him for his law firm. Problem, he doesn't have a law degree. He legally can't practice law. And so the whole show is about their little secret and how they're covering things up and they're kind of justifying to themselves that this is all good, this is completely fine. Why? Because Mike's so good at his job. We haven't done anything wrong because the the good is outweighing the bad. Problem, of course, is that as they're trying to uh, keep their secret covered, one day they have to answer for it and the consequences fall down it might be justified in their own head, but ultimately they are answerable to an external law code that is outside of themselves, and as such, they have to face the music and pay the piper. So just self-justified or not, they have the same problem, don't they? Their guilt remains. So what happens if you can't remove it, you can't ignore it, or you can't justify your guilt? Or you have to accept it? And I think the people who choose to do this are, in a lot of ways, really quite noble. Uh, They're willing to admit that what they have done is wrong. But in the end, they're still left in the same place, aren't they? Same place as Robin, who we saw uh, recount her her guilt. We are behind the bars of our guilt and we cannot be free. And the thing that I want you to understand and notice about all of these different approaches, about how we try to deal with our guilt, is that they all have one thing in common. Remove, ignore, justify, accept. None of them can remove it. Whether your head is in the sand, whether you rightly acknowledge what you have done is wrong, you're still the one carrying it. And that means that you're still the one who has to pay for it. And let's just be real. Even though that's just, nobody wants that. We want justice for everyone else out there, but we want mercy for ourselves. Nobody wants to pay the penalty for their wrongdoing. Why? Because it terrifies us. And so it begs the question for us this Easter can we ever escape our guilt and the penalty that it brings? And I want to give an initial answer. We'll add to it later. I want to say no. No, we can't. And the reason we can't escape our guilt is because we live in an objective moral reality. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that there are certain things in our world that are right and certain things in our world that are wrong that are true of all people, at all places, at all times, regardless of your culture. And there is nothing that we can do to change that fact. God tells us in the Bible that he made the world and he made the world in such a way that there is a right way of doing things morally and a wrong way of doing things morally. And what he says to us consistently is that having created that world and put us in that world, every single one of us fails to live well in his world. And we live consistently in a wrong way. Uh, If you have a look at the the passage that you had read out for us before, uh, it's uh, in the booklet. Look at verse 6. It's the bottom of that first page. Uh, This is what uh, the prophecy at that point in verse 6 says. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us turned to our own way. And if you continue to look, you see that God calls this iniquity. That's an old school term for sin uh, or wrongdoing. Uh, And this verse tells us a lot about our iniquity and the guilt that comes with it. Notice there, it tells us who's guilty. We all have gone astray. Uh, It also tells us what we're guilty of. We've all turned to our own way. Now, hang on a minute. Why is that a problem? Because I thought kind of self-determination, independence, that sort of stuff, that was a good thing. That's what we're training you to do at university. And kind of stop letting your mum drop you off and make you sandwiches at lunch. Well, we don't, don't we want to self-empower and, and do the things that we want to do? <laughs> Somebody's mum made them lunch today. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I want to say in certain situations, yes, we want to encourage that sort of independence and responsibility. But only in certain situations. Notice here that we're described as sheep. And what does that imply? Well, sheep implies a shepherd. What's the problem when a sheep goes its own way? Well, it's ignoring the shepherd, isn't it? It's taking its own direction in the way that it wants to go, separates from the flock and ends up in really strange and weird and unhelpful places. And So the thing to understand is that those mistakes and regrets and the sources of guilt that I asked you to call to mind at the beginning of the talk, those regrets, those mistakes they're actually just manifestations of a wrongdoing that is much more serious than the things that keep you up at night. Because all of us, according to this verse here, are in a far worse predicament than our consciences tell us. And we're carrying a load of guilt far greater than any of us were aware of or thought possible. Because it's not just our consciences, it's not just the cultural norms, it's not even just the Australian law that we have disobeyed, it's God. God. The one who made the world, the one who made you, the one who made you to live in the world in a way that is, is, is with him in relationship to him and to follow him as he leads to the good places that he has for us as shepherd. But instead, what we choose to do is we go our own way. And we head off into the rocky places, the desolate places, because, you know, we're big sheep. We, we can handle it. We, we, we know better than the shepherd. And so what we end up doing is we disregard God's will for our lives. And the punishment fits the crime. God declares to us in the book of Romans in chapter 6 verse 23 that the wages of sin is not getting fired. It's not feeling lousy. It's not even prison sentences. It's death. It's eternal punishment for having rejected an eternal God. And the horrible reality is that there is nothing in your power That you can do to offload that guilt. You can't ignore it. You can't justify it. You can't try and balance it out. And even if you accept it. You have the same problem. You're the one still carrying it. And that brings us to our second heading. And the joy of Easter. The bearing of guilt. How God has removed it for us. Now when I was growing up. I I watched a lot of comedy. Uh, And I particularly liked a Scottish comedian called Danny Boy. He's a bit dated now. I don't know whether you guys have heard of him. But he did this one routine where he talked about church hymns. Uh, And and he said basically with church hymns, they all have the same storyline. God is great and we are crap. So he got out his little hymn book and he was like, God is great but we are crap. And as you listen to him, do the t- you're listening to the audience as they're responding to this stand-up, and it resonates, right? They're listening to this because their experience of Christianity, this is exactly their understanding. It is one unending guilt trip. But here's the thing that Danny Boy didn't realise. He didn't realise that in every church hymn, you have that first verse, but there's a second verse that always comes after it. Yes, God is great and we are crap, morally speaking. We still have worth as human beings, right? God is great, we are crap. But then the second verse, but God is good and he takes our crap. He bears our guilt. We can't do anything about it ourselves. And so what does he do? He steps in and deals with it for us. And we see this in the passage that was read in Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet uh, to God's people around 700 BC, like I said before. And through Isaiah, God declared to his people that he would remove their sin and he would restore them to blessing and fellowship with him. And so for 51 chapters, it's a big book. God has been saying this, I'll fix the problem, I'll fix the problem, I'll fix the problem. But he hasn't told us how he's going to fix the problem. And then we hit chapter 52, verse 13, and suddenly he reveals it all to us. God will do away with our guilt, not by balancing it or ignoring it or justifying it or accepting it. He will do away with our guilt by bearing it for us. And he does that through the substitution of his servant, Jesus. So again, if you've got the passage there in front of you, have a look uh, at chapter 53, verse 1. And let's just have a look at the first three verses there. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So this is salvation language, arm of the Lord. So kind of think strength and salvation. He, that is to say God's servant, grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Now, we look at that. Why did people hold him in low esteem? I mean, this makes no sense, right? If this is God's substitute, the the promised salvation, surely they would have welcomed him. But we see again there in verse 4, the answer. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. So in other words, we look upon the servant's suffering and we conclude that he is under the judgment of God. And so we play keep away. And I think this is the natural human response, right? Because when you're walking through Perth City and you see a homeless person, what do you do? You kind of avert your eyes, you hold your breath because there's something about him or her that you you don't want to enter into their world. And even if you're inclined to give them money, um, well, you do it, but you're kind of sort of suspicious, aren't you? Like, what are you going to do with my money? And the reason for that is because we have in the back of our minds that that person, and it's not true in most cases, but that person sitting there on the pavement has made certain life choices that means they deserve to be there. Uh, and so we, 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 we distance ourselves. And this is what we do to Jesus. We see his suffering and we see him sitting on the pavement. We hold our breath because we assume that he is on the pavement there for his own sins. But here's what Isaiah says to us about this suffering servant. He's not there for his sins. He's not there for his life choices. He's there for ours. And you see that there in verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. So basically what God does is he provides a substitute in Jesus to carry our guilt and bear our punishment We're told in verse 10 that it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer and significantly to make his life an offering for sin. Literally, it means a guilt offering. It's the means by which our guilt would be taken away. Now, who would do such a thing? Who would volunteer to step in and carry the guilt of another? Well, this is where the prophecy is explicit. Jesus volunteers for the role. In his obedience to God, in his love for his people, Jesus does it willingly. We see there in verse 7... Uh, That though he was oppressed and afflicted, he did not open his mouth. There was no violence or any deceit in his mouth. That's verse 9. He could have proved his innocence, but he didn't. It was God's will to crush him, and it was the servant's will to be crushed in order that our unbearable guilt might find satisfaction and yet somehow allow us to go free. And that is what we celebrate at Easter. The great substitution of the lord jesus in our place because for the first time in history we now have a means the only means of offloading our guilt and escaping the punishment that we deserve and that brings us to our third and final heading offloading your guilt let me ask you who is carrying your guilt If you're a Christian, if you've thrown in your lot with Jesus and tied your destiny to his, then I want to say it's not you. Not anymore. Jesus carried your guilt 2,000 years ago. He nailed it to a cross. It's done. It's paid for. You are innocent. And the temptation for us as Christians is to forget that, to be tricked into thinking that we have to carry it or at least a bit of it. To kind of somehow make penance for God, as long as he knows we feel a bit guilty, then he knows that we're okay, and then we'll all be happy together. But but I just want to say, uh, brothers and sisters, that's not true. Our guilt has been carried by Jesus. The servant has suffered. The Christ has been crushed. It is done. We do not need to carry it anymore. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, can I be provocative and answer the question for you? Who is carrying your guilt? You are. But the wonderful message of the Christian gospel is that you don't need to. And I want to take a moment, just take a moment. Imagine what that looks like. Imagine what that would do to your subjective sense of guilt. Those things that keep you up at night. The things that hold on to you like weights. That drag you down like sea anchors. Those thoughts and those memories that just keep pushing themselves to the front of your mind and just won't let go the sleepless nights the sinking stomachs the self-disgust the sorrow and regret can you just imagine for a moment all of it gone removed healed by the wounds of Jesus imagine what this would do to your objective guilt So we're not talking about your emotional experience of guilt anymore. We're actually talking about your actual guilt, your current standing before God. And this is really important to get, I think, because if you see in Jesus a means to having a peace of mind, so you can just get on with your life, you can be happier and healthier and and just pursue uh, things with a calm conscience, then I think you have misunderstood what Jesus has done for you. Because he came not to save you just from your subjective sense of guilt. He came to save you from your actual guilt. The thing that your feelings merely point to. So just for imagine, can you imagine what the removal of that guilt would be like? Back with the flock, no longer in desolate places of your own making. But now back with the shepherd who knows you and knows what's good for you and has laid down his life for you so that under his rule and under his guidance and direction, you would no longer live in fear of his justice, but instead you would live in freedom. You would live in anticipation of the life that he promises each and everyone who comes to him. The life that he gave to us through Jesus when he raised him from the dead. So let me ask you a question. Who will carry your guilt this Easter? Because if you're carrying it and you don't want to, then give it to Jesus. It's the only way that you can go free. Now, if that's you, I've got something here up on the screen. Uh, it's a short prayer to pray, uh, to turn back to God, to offload your guilt. I'm going to pray it in a moment. Uh, and if this is you, um, I would love to invite you to pray it. If it's not, that's okay. Uh, nobody becomes a Christian overnight. Well, that's not true. Lots of people do. Uh, but, some people, but some people need the time. Uh, so I don't want to pressure you. But if you've been convinced and convicted, then this is the way that we come to God. repent so if you'll bow your heads with me uh, if you want to pray along with me this prayer you're more than welcome to dear God I am guilty not just of disobeying my own standards but of disobeying yours I look to you for mercy please take my guilt away through Jesus and help me to live faithfully from now on under you my shepherd amen I hope you have a lovely, guilt-free Easter, everybody.
0: Uh, Thanks, Matt. Uh, So that concludes our public meeting for today, but um, we're going to be hanging around for a bit um, just in the area out here, and some people are going to the ref. And you also have the square feedback form, so if you'd like to fill those out and give it to jeremy and lloyd who are in the front here yeah cool those two yeah thanks